Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Hamish Thompson, keynote speaker, board and startup advisor, consultant and author of the business book, It's Not Always Right to Be Right. Welcome Hamish. Thank you Darren, looking forward to it. Well, you know, some people would say, but you always have to be right. And if I'm not, <laughs> refer to rule number one. <laughs> There's always a lot of rules, aren't there, involved, isn't there? Yeah. But uh, you have quite a uh, focused in some ways, but also incredibly diverse career. I, I believe you started uh, working in advertising as yeah. the start of your career. I was, I'm unapologetic. I have had a... I, I suppose, quite a traditional career within corporate world. I started out in London advertising, first year out of university. I started out as a copywriter. I was a crap copywriter, to be honest. They quickly, much to the delight of the British uh, viewing public, they moved me into account management. Um, I enjoyed that, though. It was probably something that knowing creativity and influence that you can have through words and positioning um, it is an incredibly fast-paced uh, fast environment. Um, but I think that's actually stayed with me throughout uh, throughout my career. I still frustrate my marketing directors at times because I will try and write the copy for the ad and push it oh, in. Oh, no! I'm the worst within that. But uh, <laughs> rest assured, I haven't had any uh, success within that. But uh, I just love the power of, uh, of good copy. So you're working in an advertising agency and you made the leap to the client side. Was that with Reebok, wasn't it? Yeah. it's. Um, I suppose it was probably the dream job as a, as a youngster. Um, so went up to the north of England, based on that. In those days, Reebok was uh, in the UK was number one. It was always around the sort of do your personal best and it was a positioning that worked incredibly well within the British persona. I always remember, I think it was Damon Hill, uh, won the Sports Personality of the Year one year, but he came second within the uh, Formula One Drivers' Championship. And you think, gee, would that happen in New Zealand or Australia? Hmm, probably not. <laughs> no. So uh, positioning-wise was good, but I did a variety of uh, brand management, uh, sales roles, looked after Northern Europe, and then uh, looked after the marketing for, uh, for Europe based out of the Netherlands. Um, cool place, cool environment, very insular industry. Um, I liked it, um, incredibly passionate people, very dedicated, uh, good pace and excitement and you, you know, there's a, an embracement of, uh, of risk taking and it's okay to fail, uh, but you have to try. But it is at the same time, um, it was reasonably sort of insular. So sort of eight years into it, we had our first uh, kid within the Netherlands um, and decided to come back uh, closer to home, back to NZ. and. Uh, Ended up in Albury, Wodonga, of all places. Well, I, I was <laughs> going to raise that because, you know, you're, you're originally a Kiwi by birth. How does a, a boy from the uh, land of the long white cloud find himself working in an advertising agency in London? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I suppose university-wise, I did marketing and commercial law. Um, I'd always been a lawyer, actually. Quite interesting on that, but... Uh, 
I just like the way that the pragmatism and logic and law thinks and great sort of perspective. But no, I had a passion within advertising, um, whatever it took, didn't bother me where, to be honest. Um, I, uh, you know, I just wanted to get within the industry. It's interesting, Darren, that people have often said, why are New Zealand agencies, creative agencies, so creative? And it's not, um, obviously, a little bit biased, but uh, you think around the Saatchis, the Colenzos of the world, they play miles above their, uh, oh. their sort of weight on that. And I've always thought it's twofold. One, when you're in NZ, you do realise that you're small. And 70% of the news was always around international. When you move to a place like Australia or obviously within the US or even the parts of Europe, it's maybe 30% is international and it's all domestic. So you realise very quickly um, you need to be curious. Their perspective is so much beyond the four walls. So I think that curiosity um, and drive is key. And the other one is whenever you're in an agency, and uh, you'll know this very well, normally when a creative idea or a negative idea is presented to a client, um, they say, what do you think? And the client says, I love it. They say, okay, what's the next stage? What research do you want us to do? In New Zealand, it's a case of, what do you mean research? Just, uh, you like it, don't you? Get on and do it. And you will get to an end result that is not diluted. So I love that philosophy. Well, look, that's a terrific perspective because, like you, I've been observing uh, New Zealand agencies punching way above their weight, you know, globally uh, for their creative insights. So the observation I'd make, similar to yours but slightly different, is one of the things I love about meetings with agencies and their clients in New Zealand is that the CEO or the senior person is usually there or pops by to say hello to the agency, which in the bigger market, you know, because of these tiering of responsibility doesn't seem to happen. Um, And the second thing is that I think when you feel like you're the minnow, the only way is up. When you're in a small pond, you might as well go for it because after all, if you fail, what's the downside? You'll uh, still be in a small pond. But, yeah, if you go for it in New Zealand, there's a chance that people somewhere in the world will see what you've done and that they'll want some of that innovation. I think the less, in some ways, the less you have to lose, the braver you are to really go for the opportunity, which I think if we could only replicate that in countries and, and markets and organisations around the world, that it's not about what you lose. You've got to keep looking at the upside. So one of the, uh, I think you're spot on, one of the frustrations I've always found within a global business or a company that has massive portfolios, why can't you use set markets and set brands within your portfolio as your test case for totally new business models? Um, I heard the other day there was a, I was actually interviewed for it uh, two years back, I think it was a Boehner or McKinsey survey. It said 90% of CEOs are massively nervous in the next three to five years of a massive business model disruption, yet they only spend 10% of resources, time and money and thought Mm. on those future capabilities now. So... When you've got nothing to lose and you've got a wide portfolio of brands and a wide 180-odd plus markets globally, you want a few of them to be playing on the edge, learn, test, learn, do something completely different 
and that's going to lift your whole base when you get the solution. Um, you can't be conservative uh, when you have a large portfolio. That's right. You need to, as you said, test and learn. So just to take you back to yeah, our conversation, <laughs> you, um, you'd left the Netherlands, you'd left uh, Reebok, you'd come back to Australia, and you actually cover this in your book, is your for, um, you were approached for a job at Mars yeah. up at Albury Wodonga, and I have to say it's a terrific description of your uh, your first encounter with uh, with Albury Wodonga and also <laughs> with Mars. It's a it was a different experience for the Netherlands, put it that way. But uh, I'm uh, yeah, uh, anyone who's lived within a rural location uh, and regional location will will be a great testament to how good it is, particularly in regard to family life. You're looked after incredibly well. You get a lot of freedom and responsibility within your role. Um, so uh, I loved it within uh, within that environment. Incredible sort of lessons throughout. Um, but I think the key element is when you get yourself within an environment and a company that meets your values, uh, aligns with hopefully your talents, not like my copywriting days, um, it is a marriage made in heaven. And uh, I've got so much time for family-oriented companies like Mars, who I think are very purpose-led, um, provide a lot of that freedom, incredible intellectual stimulation. Um, and when it works, it's uh, it's fantastic. But uh, I'd had 20-odd years there. I loved it last 12, doing CEO roles you know, globally, et cetera. And uh, I just needed a challenge and a, and a change. My boss still thinks I'm crazy and my wife still thinks I'm a little bit crazy at times, but uh, uh, I haven't regretted it over the last year or so. But it's a wonderful company. So 20 years with Mars, you went in uh, in marketing and yeah. you uh, progressed through there to end up running business units and brands, global brands and regional business units, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I've, um, I've always had a marketing uh, background. So I did the marketing directors and sales director uh, roles within that. But uh, I've always had an affinity with manufacturing and supply chain. So the beauty within the three sort of CEO type roles that I've done two within Australia and then uh, one within the uh, UK and Europe. Um, I had uh, full end-to-end uh, -end supply chain uh, P&L responsibility. And um, that's actually really cool diversity. You, uh, you learn a lot, um, you have a holistic lens, but importantly, I think you realise what it takes to connect and integrate people together. And that's where, you know, we were talking around this uh, earlier, around that uh, first chapter within that book, Law, Logic and Relationships. Unfortunately, we don't reward those people who can connect and integrate cross-functional departments, uh, external connectivity as well enough uh, versus that of technical and functional brilliance. Now, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, they're not mutually <laughs> exclusive. Um, but I think that ability to actually really look from a complete commercial lens uh, is, uh, is pretty cool, uh, but it's quite unique within business now. They, uh, the functional excellence, you know, is it vertical or horizontal specialisation? Um, and I'm not sure I've got the answer for that. I just know I prefer the wider breadth. Well, the, one I, the, the model or the description I like is the T model, you know, that you want people that have a broad functional understanding and a depth in a particular area because they are the ones that are most likely to become the connectors. 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're right in that. It's, um, Facebook have a model. I remember uh, I was in Facebook HQ in London, and they have a learning and development model that even within your senior generalist, you know, general manager, exec president type roles, you have to dedicate a certain uh, percentage of your development time to functional and technical learning. And uh, I like that. It keeps you sharp. Mm. Um, and it also shows a depth of technical knowledge and the importance of technical knowledge uh, within any industry. So I sort of like the like the balance. It's tough for people, though. A lot of uh, marketeers struggle around the, the opposite on that. How do you less focus on the technical and functional area and more focus on the leadership development? And it's understandable why people feel like that because they've been doing it all their life. They've been successful with technical and functional know-how, um, but it can be limited if they don't uh, get the relationship and the uh, leadership uh, dimensions right. Well, I'd, li- I'd like to explore that a bit more in a minute, but just to go back to one, one of the amazing things from everything, I've not worked at Mars, but everything I've heard about it as a company is that, um, and, and I'd love your perspective on this, is uh, whether you call it uh, uh, FMCG or consumer packaged goods, that the marketing role is multidimensional beyond the promotions component of the four P's of marketing, but that also there is much more holistic uh, view of you as a person and the skill set, that it almost looks to you know, bringing out those. Um, they take a longer term view of the, the human resources that they have within the organisation. Is that is that a reasonable you? Yeah, and I, I, I probably, um, I'll talk more more specifically probably around a family cultural environment, and I think that's similar within Mars and a number of different places. So the egalitarian approach of everyone's opinion accounts, regardless of where you are, um, it really resonates with me, and I think for a lot of purpose and value-led individuals, I think it really does. So immediately within those family-led organisations, and it's not unique just to family, if the culture supports that, you are encouraged from a very early um, tenure within your, within the company to input, provide your opinion, one, within your functional domain, but secondly, um, you bring in diversity, fresh thought, new perspective uh, across multi, uh, multi-functions and disciplines. So it's incredibly liberating as an individual. You feel good and respected for that. But equally, um, just that diversity and thought diversity uh, across so many different functions is absolutely, absolutely key. And I think that's why there's never really been a set program or philosophy that if you want to be a regional president, a CEO, general manager, etc., you have to have followed this career path. Right. Um, you know, marketeers do it, salespeople do it, CFOs, you know, supply community, corporate affairs. Um, it's more, do you have a commercial lens? And have you showed that breadth and that real curiosity? Um, and I was exposed the other day to a great... Uh, uh, was an algebra equation or something, never been my strength, Darren, but C plus W is greater than E. Curiosity and willingness is greater than experience. And I really liked it as a recruitment tool. You don't want to bugger up your operational roles where you need depth of experience, 
for those people who are very curious and have a willingness, and I term passion, to voice their opinions, bring fresh insight, challenge across an organisation at all different levels, and are going to be respected and at least listened to, not always agreed with, but listened to, um, it's a pretty infectious culture, which is one of the reasons why I think it's been an enduring culture within uh, family businesses like Mars. Um, that's a really interesting equation because it's also what's informing a lot of the m move in education. Because in a world where we can't even predict what jobs are going to be needed in five or ten years' time, we should be training people to be curious and to apply their skills and curiosity to solving whatever problems in front of them rather than teaching, you know, sort of mechanical skills or technical skills, teaching them problem solving and curiosity and communication and collaboration are really is really about creating the workforce of the future. Yeah. Because I'd, I'd defy anyone to tell me what jobs they're going to need in their organisations, what roles they're going to need to fill in five or ten years' time. So do you think it's um, it's always that nature and nurture question, isn't it? There's never a right answer for it. Um, but do you feel that curiosity or that insatiable you know, thirst for curiosity and perspective, um, it can be trained or does it need to be inherent within somebody to begin with? I think that it's degrees. You know, if someone has an inherent curiosity, it can be encouraged. Yeah. If someone has low curiosity or, or no curiosity, I'd have to say a lot of that would not necessarily be genetic. It's all nurture because I think a lot... Human beings at childhood are curious. It's the way children learn. I think, uh, you know, was it... Um, what's his name? Robertson, the, the English uh, educationalist, was saying, you know, children... Uh, the perfect learning vehicle, what we then do is put them through an education um, system <laughs> that basically destroys what makes them perfect at learning, you know. Um, um, uh, and, and I yeah. think that's that's part of it. So, you know, but to degrees, I think that, that there can only be upside to encouraging curiosity and, and creating, um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned before is creating an environment where people are respected for their contribution and, and you know, are encouraged to ask questions or to put forward thoughts and ideas yeah. because this is where innovation comes from. And I love the fact that you use thought diversity because diversity is exactly, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about the importance of it. It's absolutely important when it comes to innovation. Innovation comes from making new patterns and we can only get new patterns when we have new ways of thinking. Yeah, I think the role of any leader as well within any business and I've, I've been guilty of this in the past that uh, the typical sort of you know CEO level, we've, we're, we're all egotistical. We say we're not and we, I talk around my you know greatest leaders, the humility and everything, but we're all, we're, we've all got egos within that. But I think a lot of people, including myself, particularly at a younger age, um, you were guilty of surrounding yourself with yes people who would execute against your strategic thought and direction. Um, and when you're in a tailwind category, and you're strategically, it's pretty hard to get it too far sort of wrong. Uh, but realistically, you want that diversity, you want that challenge to people saying, yeah, nice idea, get back in your box, we'll focus on our core, our core area of, uh, of profit or revenue. Um, but 
it's something I think you get to and you realise that the ideas and thought process of others, if you can value them ahead of your own, you obviously uh, you benchmark them against your own, but if you go in with a mindset that, gee, okay, this is going to be an actual input and an insight that I value ahead of my own, uh, it makes you second think. Mm. It's one of the things I like is that uh, leadership style of never giving your opinion first as the leader. Yeah. Always ask everyone else yeah. and acknowledge them for their contribution, whether you think it's right, wrong or indifferent. It doesn't happen often though, does it? No. no. no people are very quick to, oh, this is what I think, let's go and do it. Exactly. Hey, um, Hamish, I'd like to, uh, to take you back and, you know, to the transition from an advertising agency to working in you know, a marketing environment, a corporate environment, where you went from the agency to Reebok. Are there any thoughts on in reflection or in hindsight about what that transition meant? You know, or, or was it is it relatively easy to, or you found it relatively easy to jump what they say is either side of the fence? Yeah, it's um, in transparency, I think back then, and this is going back a few years, um, I think there were difficulties and challenges, but I don't think they would be looked at as, uh, as blockers as maybe they are today. And let me put a little bit of context on that. So with an agency environment, you will get amazing capabilities, competencies, and learning and development. You'll get pace, agility, you'll get creative inspiration, um, blah, 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 you know, incredible assets. You will miss out on operational and executional excellence at an operational level. You will miss out in some ways around um, planning executional accountability. Now, you could argue that both ways in regard to the way some uh, agency uh, comp and room is set up at the moment, but I do think you will miss out on a classical training environment that you will get within a typical corporate. That said, equally, I look at the number of training programs, and this has changed, I think, probably over the last five years. It almost was a too regimented, structured, blue-chip collar environment and that's where the cutting-edge, technical, entrepreneurial way of thinking that the likes of your top four suddenly mm. realised, yeah, okay, this is, a, this is an importance. So I think those uh, transitions uh, across from agency, consultancy, client, um, I think they're easier those days but I still think they are vitally important uh, nowadays. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, agencies are incredibly adaptable. Mm. And But what they really have to do is anything at scale. Whereas in a corporate world, almost everything has to be executed at scale. Mm. The, just the sheer scale of most organisations. So, you know, people talk about large agencies. A large agency office is 500 people. Maybe the biggest one would be 800. But, you know, you go into a corporate environment, you can have offices of 1,000 people, 10,000 people. You know, suddenly there's so many more levers that need to be considered before they're even pulled, you know. So I can imagine that would be significant. Yeah, and I think scale can be scale can be a dangerous thing in regard to resources. 
And when you have too many resources available, it's a terrible thing to say because people automatically jump to organisational design, which I'm, uh, I'm uh, vastly against, probably 95% of uh, org design or revamps or restructures, but that's a different topic. But um, when you have a lot of resources, you can very easily get distracted and you view those resources as being incredibly flexible and you lose focus against your core revenue or profit stream. And I'm a massive believer in sweating the assets, but within your core focus area, most people believe that it's almost at a saturation point and that innovation and creativity takes a backward seat. So we need to go with a new adjacency. Now I'm one of these people, Darren, who I love new things, shining and bright. My mind works creatively around, okay, let's look here, there and everywhere. One, I need right people around me, as I said before, not yes people, good CFOs, good challenges within my leadership team to say, get back within the box, we'll focus on this. But secondly, I need to embrace uh, an environment and create a culture where people have freedom to be creative and innovative within the core focus within the business. Um, and I've, I've never been in an environment where a core profit revenue segment is saturated. And as soon as people say, hey, this is a mature market, um, it actually gives me a bit of a challenge to say, <laughs> there's, there's no such thing as a mature market. <laughs> to look for where the opportunities Spot are. On. Yeah. That, that's an interesting perspective from where you went from uh, you know, wanting to be the strategic driver to realising the importance of the team around you as, as part of the mm. success of, of the strategy. Do you think that's an important skill? And, and I'll ask for you personally, but also generally. When you went from a marketing role to a marketing leadership role, or was it more about the skill that you needed from that leadership role in marketing into a business leader? Because, you know, in some ways that's quite different. Yeah, I think, um, yes, it is different. Um, I think the, the parallels, the ones that are the same, I was told actually by a colleague of yours, uh, Julian Barrons, um, back within the old marketing director days in uh, pet care. And I always remember he said to me, going into the marketing director role, he said, your peers are now more important than your team. And I'd always been loved by my team. It was something I really always have a passion of. I'm a firm believer that a great leader will have respect, but is also liked. Now, a lot of people think differently, and I'm not saying I'm right or wrong on that. It's just my view that people will go over the top and do extraordinary things for people they respect. And that's, if you don't have respect, you're buggered. But if they respect and like, you'll go over the top. And I've always done that with uh, leaders. And I've fortunately had some amazing leaders who, who get both sides on that. But when you do take a, uh, a new position, suddenly, as a director, your sales, your supply director, your corporate affairs, etc., are more important than your team. And as a competitive, driven individual who is being functionally led, that's an incredibly difficult mindset to get across that your first team mentality in the Patrick Lencioni books is always going to be that business first lens. And then I think when going from a marketing director into a general manager's role, yeah, there is an advantage to have done different functions. I'd always done uh, sales and, uh, and marketing within that. But 
if you have a curiosity and a commercial lens and a business lens focus, and you're talking business strategy, that marketing falls within that, and you know you have a responsibility of business first, function second, I think it's actually quite an easy transition. Um, that said, it's not right for everyone because sometimes um, they may not actually have that desire to do those more generalist roles. Uh, and I can understand that. I've mentioned to you in the past, I miss some of my probably sales and manufacturing uh, time because it's so operational and tangible um, ahead of my marketing days, actually. Well, uh, but to your point, you know, you then just build the team around you and yeah. you become the leader of that team rather than the, you know, putting yourself as an essential part of that cog or that, that composition, you know. And importantly, when you have had a functional background, um, my view is it's even more important to step away and not influence. So you still want to challenge and stretch, and I have this concept called the 30% rule, where against the core segment, I will put a target that the only way to be achieved is to, has to use a new business model, normally external connectivity, uh, and force a behavioral change. Right. And when you do that, you cannot, if you believe you're a past marketing guru or sales guru, you have to give total freedom and creativity to do that. You don't become situational leadership directive-wise, and you have to also provide a psychological safety barrier that if they fail, it's okay as long as you've learned from it. And that's difficult when you've had a background within one function. I'm, I'm so glad you, uh, you shared that because, uh, Hamish, I've known a number of people in marketing that have taken on a marketing leadership role when the previous person has been promoted into a management role and they said it's the worst experience because they're constantly looking at you saying well that's not how I would have done it and you're not delivering the way I would <laughs> very hard to fulfill the the role when the person's now your boss <laughs> very true look um one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is that there's a lot of conversation in the industry about why there aren't more CEOs managing directors that have a marketing background. And I know it does vary from market to market. You know, there seems to be more in the US. Uh, there seems to be some or more than Australia in, uh, in the UK. But Australia and, and particularly parts of Asia, marketing doesn't feel like it's a natural progression into uh, you know, senior management. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is, what, yeah. where, where, do you, first of all, do you think it's uh, it's true or it's just a perception? Well, listen, I, I don't know the I don't know the stats. I've never actually sort of looked at that um, personally. And obviously, I probably would say this because of my background. I don't see it as an issue, and the reason that I don't see it as an issue is that I have seen exceptional leaders who are consumer-oriented and consumer background um, and have a commercial lens and a commercial focus that blends marketing and business uh, harmoniously. Yeah. So I see that on regular occasions, but I don't have the stats from it. First thing I'd probably sort of say is that I think there's also an individual choice around 
is it the right career path that's really going to match my passions and my talents? And when it is, tremendous. But it's not for everyone. Um, you do lose a bit of that thrill. As I said, I love being a copywriter, but as soon as you're not allowed to write your own ads, bloody hell, that can be frustrating. <laughs> um, but when you know what your passions are and align those with your talents, I think that's the first decision point you can make. And then if you have got those talents in regard to commercial lens, insatiable curiosity and perspective, a leader, a wider leader of others, which you should have as a marketing uh, director anyway, uh, or a key CMO, um, providing it matches your passions. Um, I think it's a marriage made in heaven when you get that right. Um, but that said, it's not for, not for everyone. Equally though, I would say that those people who sit on a leadership or a C-suite exec level, the CMO director level, um, if they do not from day one show a business mindset first, functional um, department mindset second, and don't view first team mentality, um, very seldom will they, go, uh, will they go that next stage. And that's uh, regardless of what function you're in, you have to have that first responsibility is as a business director, um, second responsibility is functional. And that is hard for some people to actually uh, actually get as well. And just sort of rambling a little bit, but my other element would be that I don't see it so much as a problem because the best marketing people, the exceptional ones, are normally incredibly influential, have massive kudos and share a voice across the business at a strategic lens and people follow them. Um, and they are normally incredible relationship-driven people and ideally have a very strong external connectivity base that a lot of other departments can be a little bit insular and, uh, and functional. So I think most of, the, uh, uh, most of the assets are there is just whether they have that desire to do it. Because yeah, the only fact that I've seen is one of the big recruiting firms said that the CMO has the shortest tenure of the C-suite. And, okay. and I'm wondering if <laughs> the part of the problem is that, and, and, and there was a Harvard Business Review article that identified why. And the reason is that there is often a misalignment of expectations between the CEO and the CMO, in that the CEO will often recruit a CMO on the basis of a conversation around growing the business, growing the, the brand value and the long-term uh, uh, success of the business. And then the CMO will get appointed and get told, well, here's your lever, it's called the advertising budget, <laughs> and you know, I have the right to uh, turn that tap off at any time if I need to improve the bottom line, but you go ahead and grow the business. And it's a very, yeah, this is this misalignment, which is why uh, CMOs in a lot of organisations where they're, rec you know, they haven't grown up. I mean, it'll, it's interesting having this conversation mm. with you because I, I'm, I'm hearing in the language and your approach that your 20 years in Mars was really an education in a way in a, a, of transitioning you from a brand person from uh, Reebok 
through to a business leader who was running, you know, regional and global businesses. Whereas a lot of CMOs never get that opportunity because if you're going to last in the job 22 months, I think was one number, you know, which is ridiculous. What You've just unpacked your office and you're packing it up again. You know, how do you become yeah. a leader when you're there for such short periods of time? And it's a big, brave call to put somebody out of their comfort zone and stretch them sometimes within panic mode around big cross-functional uh, mm. assignments. Um, yet those cross-functional assignments, and one thing that I'm very conscious of, I used to put an operational expert at the head of a major change initiative. I will never do that anymore. I will put my best relationship driver and an integrator and connector of people um, even if they know bugger all around that subject matter, I'll put them as the lead of that program. So one, it's a massive talent developer and it can be a huge mm. unlocker of confidence but uh, also potential. But equally, you know that if you get the right energy and inspiration um, and a team mentality as opposed to an individual performance on it, um, it can unlock something very special within the business. I'm, I'm interested, Darren, about the... Years ago, I think the idea of a CEO leading the business around continuity and just consistency, year to year, low single-digit growth, etc. I think those days may be a little bit numbered. Now, I may be wrong, and I'm not saying it's right, but uh, I sort of view on that, and I've probably got a predisposition because I like, I've got this concept which uh, doesn't help me at times called constant dissatisfaction. It's not healthy. Even when things are going well, I want to challenge and do something differently. I want to sort of stay ahead of that curve, etc. And I always remember reading that, uh, which is a great book, and I don't I finish bugger all uh, leadership books, um, and Michael Watkins, The First 90 Days. Yeah. And his four-segment uh, model, yeah. turnaround, startup, uh, sorry, startup, turnaround, realignment, um, maintaining success. The word maintaining success means decline to me. It reduces your pressure valve within the business. And unless you are looking to do a realignment, we're not quite as good as we are, people. It's um, We need to do something a little bit different. Or we're in a world of pain. Our tailwind is turning as a headwind. Follow me within a turnaround. I feel that mindset of constant dissatisfaction, needing to keep ahead of the curve, not, not needing to lose to learn, that I think is what uh, most business expectations are, particularly at a CEO level. And the person who always should be, one, the most inspirational around vision and possibility, but secondly, the person who should always be dissatisfied and always looking for something different, should in my mind be the CMO. But equally, you want good people around you when you get to that CEO to say, get back in your box. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, probably the best example of the turnaround is uh, Microsoft, you know, after the, uh, the, uh, the sell-off. To actually take an organisation like that, which is, was so preeminent in the category, and then it took such a hit for them to restructure it and say, people, you know, we can't keep going the way we're going. The, the idea of, uh, I've always thought a realignment is harder than a turnaround. As I said, when you're in a turnaround situation, and I've been in a few of those, the markets that I've gone into, 
people don't want endless discussion around what we should do. They want to be told essentially, okay, we're in a world of pain, here's the direction we're following, but conviction marketing or conviction leadership. And generally, you can inspire and get people around you. And you know, as long as your strategic direction's okay, it's down to probably sort of executional excellence. In a realignment, particularly a successful business who's had historical success, it's very hard to tell people, gee, um, we're going to have to do things a little bit differently at this stage. Um, you know, there's only so many, so many times you can mention the codex and the, of, the, yeah. of the world. So, so you're talking about uh, you know, the, the lack of a burning platform because yeah. it's very he- easy for people to go back, to mix my metaphors, to go back into the wheel ruts when there's no reason for uh, striking out in a slightly better direction. So in your experience within that's the first rule of change management, create the burning platform, do you think it's better to do it through an inspirational lens of possibility or a fear factor? Uh, always inspirational because yeah. fear factor burns people out. The constant fear actually minimises their ability, destroys taking risk-taking, you know, what you should be doing is looking for the upside and the opportunity. That's my perspective. I'm assuming so, that no, you would agree. I'm 100% uh, behind it. It was a leading question because the amount of times that I see change initiatives started through a fear situation, light the fire, mm. <laughs> um, I think I understand why because you can always do, this goes back to my point around a restructure, you can always do it. You can always cost uh, cost cutting because there's a definable black and white mm-hmm. endpoint tangible. You'll go through pain to do so, but you can always do it. When you look at possibility and growth and innovation, there's always an unknown, and uh, I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons that people start from that burning burning platform as opposed to an inspiration or hope. But my view, a marketing a marketer's job ahead of anyone else is provide inspiration. Um, hard to do. Hamish, I've just uh, noticed the time. It's been a terrific conversation. Your book is It's Not Always Right to Be Right by Hamish Thompson. It's uh, available widely, is it? Uh, it can is. Can people all, get it on all yeah. the usual book sources? All international markets and uh, standard online. Um, yeah. Fantastic. It's, uh, it's different. And um, I also just wanted to ask you a question uh, before we go, and that is, well, as a a frustrated copywriter, does that mean we're looking forward to a second or third book coming soon? 